0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: I've gotten really good to it about not saying I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm focused. I'm appreciative of you, and I hope everything goes awesome for you, but I'm not sorry that I'm focusing on my stuff and not your stuff. I almost have to have a harder edge about it or I won't do it. So that's been huge. I could be the best time manager in the world, and if I said yes to everybody else's priorities, I would get nothing done. Are you getting
2: the attention you deserve from your financial advisor? Well, if you're not, call our partner Edelman Financial Engines at 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com/hermoney. As a Her Money listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan to help you decide. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. I want to start today's show with a question. When was the last time that you disagreed with someone? It might have been just seconds, actually, before you pressed play on this podcast, or if you're a peacekeeper by nature, it may be even difficult for you to come up with an example. But today, we're going to talk about disagreements from the perspective of being contrarian. We're going to talk about what it means to think in a contrarian way as it relates to our money, our investments, and entrepreneurship. Because sometimes doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing, trying something different, is the best way to find success. Before she became a chef, Ina Garten was working in nuclear energy policy for the White House. Madeline Albright was a stay-at-home mom and volunteer until she decided to give politics a go, similar to Vera Wang, who worked as a figure skater and then a journalist before finding her way into fashion in her 40s. The point is, history is full of entrepreneurs and investors who took a risk when other people said they were crazy, who saw possibility when other people saw absolutely none at all. And for many people with contrarian viewpoints, doing something different, well, it pays off in a major way. So today we're going to be talking about what it means to be contrarian in a way that helps us win. Not when arguments necessarily, but win financially, win if you're an entrepreneur, and win as investors in the market. We're doing it with Cody Sanchez. She is founder and CEO of Contrarian Thinking and Unconventional Acquisitions. Cody's community, which is called Contrarian Cashflow, offers instructional guides for women who are looking to invest and for those who are interested in entrepreneurship or maybe even acquiring a small business that's already up and running. Cody owns 15 businesses actively. She's a majority shareholder in two others. And over the course of her career, she's invested in 80 different companies. But although her audience knows her best as an investor and an entrepreneur, Her career path is pretty contrarian itself. Over the decades, she worked for Vanguard, Goldman Sachs, on the Senate campaign for John McCain as a journalist, as an investor in cannabis, and has built businesses to billion dollar valuations. Amazing. Cody, you know what? I think I'm just going to stop talking and let you take it from here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. So before we got on the air, you said you don't have enough of these conversations with
1: women. Why do you think that is? Well, I think some of it's a byproduct of the fact that we're pretty underrepresented in finance, which is usually what I'm talking about. Definitely on the deal side, you know, I'm always a little funny about this because on one hand, you know, one of my favorite things to say when people ask me if I can come speak at an event because they're looking for a great female CEO is that my vagina really has nothing to do with my CEO status. And so on one hand, I'm like, ah, I don't know if it matters. I don't want to talk about my private parts too often. But on the other hand, I think that I'd be crazy to say that for women, there aren't differences and there aren't some things that are harder and perhaps better you know I see it a lot in the public sphere because I decided to go out and get a little bit more public than I've ever been in my career and you know the amount of times that because I'm a woman I ruffle feathers in finance is actually I find it a little comical now but I think young Cody would have been mortified all these people saying like on twitter i had this thing the other couple of weeks ago where you know they didn't believe that i ever worked at goldman sachs and so a bunch of guys in finance you know were going and looking up in finance i mean you guys know but we have to be registered with the sec so series 7 6 i have a 24 which is a principals license so i could manage people i mean i've been licensed since 2008 or 2007 and on it you can see everywhere everybody's worked and i sort of giggled because you know they were like adding Goldman Sachs, like, did she ever even work there? And what was my crime? My crime was saying that financial statements are actually quite easy to read, And here's how you do it, and saying that you don't have to work at Goldman or be in private equity to do this, and we shouldn't be charging two and twenty all the time. And a bunch of guys in private equity don't like to hear that. And I think if I was a guy, you know, they wouldn't have been questioning my actual credentials. So there, you know, it goes both ways. Yes, I have a vagina. No, I don't think it matters, except sometimes it does. I kind of agree with you on that. I think there have been
2: times in my career when I started talking about money on television. I think it helped to be a woman because there was nobody who looked like me at the time, right? There were very, very few women doing what I was doing. And so that made me unusual, maybe a little bit more marketable. And there have been other times when I think it's gone the opposite direction. Talk about your work history a little more. I mean, you don't have a traditional career by any means.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, and kudos to you, by the way, because I think we probably don't say enough to other women and... I know when I was coming up in the industry, it certainly didn't happen to me enough. Like, there's other people that paved the way. I mean, a lot of women in in my generation, when I was coming up, we would give some of the women who are ahead of us a harder time. Like, why is she so tough or hard on us or whatever? It was because at that time, there was like one or two that were sort of around. And you had to be tough. And then I saw myself getting tough. Mm -hmm. And then the next generation probably thinks I'm too tough. And so, you know, I think it's cool to see other women bring other women up, not an exclusion to men. So anyway, my career, I started off in human trafficking and drug smuggling as a journalist, not a proprietor. (laughs) And what was interesting about that is that when I was doing the investigation into that realm, my last name's Sanchez, a lot of the people who were sort of victims in that trade's last name was Sanchez. And so I started to try to figure out why did they have a different life than I did And that was hard for me at first. And what I realized is it was this green thing that I had that they didn't, which was money. And so I climbed my way through Goldman Sachs and State Street and Vanguard and a company called First Trust through a bunch of firms. First, generalized asset management, I did some private equity stuff, I did a structuring of deals, I did taking companies public, lots of different things inside of the industry and, and certainly sales throughout as well. And then finally got to a realm where I was like, wait a second, why am I doing this for a bunch of other people? Why don't, if I know how to do deals, why don't I buy my own companies? I could do it at a smaller scale and scale up and then I don't have to have so many bosses. And so that's what happened, you know, let's call it five or six years ago for the first time as I sort of realized, oh, I could make just as much money doing my own deals as I am with these golden handcuffs. I want to be a partner in anything I do from now on, and that's when I made the big jump.
2: So that's a very contrarian way to approach it to begin with. What does being a contrarian mean to you?
1: When I started contrarian thinking, our newsletter was January of 2020. And the reason I call it contrarian thinking is twofold. One, there's a great book called Letters to a Young Contrarian that I read back in the day. Christopher Hitchens is his name. And he was sort of a wild activist. And I think he's a beautiful writer and I'm a writer by origination. And so I always love to go back to that. And what I liked about Hitchens is it's not about always disagreeing with people. It's about being able to stand in disagreement when you truly believe something and, the masses or the mob does not. And that is a hugely beneficial stance to be able to take as an investor because if you're investing like everybody else, you're probably not going to have an opportunity for large arbitrage. And so you really have to have a differentiated point of view where there's some difference between what the narrative is and what the numbers you see are that allows you to make money. And so that was really useful to me. But what it really means is that you are able to stand alone when you have to. And that is a very scary thing for us to do as humans. And it's funny. What happens also is now people say, well, I don't like the term contrarian because too many people use it or it's not contrarian enough. And I think what actually happens there is people do not like when you shine a mirror in front of their opinions and ask for some rationality, ask for them to back their thoughts. And that's what I think contrarians do. And it's very needed in the world we have today. Not to be a jerk either, just to be critical. Right. To be critical
2: and to be able to think for yourself, I think, is another way of putting it. Warren Buffett famously said, be greedy when others are fearful, be fearful when others are greedy. I might have gotten that in reverse. We, as our listeners know, tape this podcast in advance, and today we are taping it on a day when the markets are down really big, after a week when the markets were down really big. Crypto is just falling apart. There was a closure of a Bitcoin exchange earlier in the day. What do you make as an investor of where we are right now in the economy? And for people who take a long-term perspective, who aren't day traders, because most of our listeners are not. What do you do at a time like this?
1: Well, I think the first thing you do is accept what's real, which is that we're probably in a recessionary period. And that does not mean that we are in the apocalypse. The recession is a normal part of the market cycle. And so I think accepting that first. Okay. Okay. Perhaps it is true that we're in a recession. And we'll know that if there's two quarters of negative growth, GDP growth. But you know, really how we know that is that things start to slow down overall, right? And I think people are already feeling that in many instances. The second thing that I would say is, as long as you're not over levered, and as long as you have cash to deploy, and you continue focusing on increasing your earnings, and stabilizing or decreasing your spending, recessionary environments are actually incredible periods for wealth creation. You know, if you were to look at the vintages of private equity funds, you know, venture capital funds, real estate funds, the best vintages or the years where a fund is started are typically right during or following a recession. And that's because all of that YOLOing into stocks done by the FOMO crowd isn't happening anymore. And you get markets that are at either depressed or reasonable valuations, and then you can build back up to that speculative nature. And so I would say, one, you know, don't lose your mind. This isn't the apocalypse. The world as we know it is not going to end because we come into a recession. But what is going to happen is that you probably need a plan. I was just at a mastermind maybe four weeks ago with eight or nine-figure e-commerce entrepreneurs, and I had them all raise their hands if they had a plan for a recession. One, how they would just survive it, and then two, how They would thrive during it. And wouldn't you know you know, less than 4% of the audience actually raised their hand. And so everything gets easier and less daunting if you have a plan. My husband and I put together a plan. Okay, if the market goes down this much, this is what we think the market would actually be worth in this period. This is when we would probably start reinvesting in the market regardless of how emotional we are. This is what we think the real estate market is worth in varying areas. We might buy if the market does X or Y or Z. Here's where we'd wanna change our spending patterns if we decrease our earnings by this or if this happens. And here's where we could do that easily. So then if all of this stuff happens, you realize, oh man, I could pretty easily make a few changes that not only would now protect me, but where could we make a lot of money during a downturn because we're just unemotional about it? And that's the real difference.
2: Often people will just continue to invest as they've been investing, through upturns and downturns. And historically, for individual investors who are putting money into their 401ks and sticking with an asset allocation that they've laid out before, that has worked pretty well. For people who want to be a little more opportunistic, and I'm not really talking about the private equity crowd, How do you look at a market like this? How do you think about, let me, you know, maybe I'll continue to make my investments, but I might put some cash on the sidelines and I might look for my opportunities, whether in real estate or in stocks or in other things.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to do it really easily. I mean, so say you want path least resistance, right? And you want to invest in some blue chip names in the stock market at bargain basement prices well the easiest way to do that is look at historical five-year averages so what's this historical five-year average price of let's say some of your favorite growth tech stocks maybe you want to look at the five-year average of Amazon or Walmart or whatever company that you think is going to probably weather this store because it has a good sizable cash balance on hand which is really easy to see Yahoo Finance moving five-year average and cash balance on hand that would allow, no matter what happens, them to continue financing the business, probably, for a foreseeable timeline. And then when you see that it starts to dip below those five-year levels, you start to become a buyer in those markets. So that's one easy way, I think, to do it. Buying the generalized stock market is also an easy way to do it. I mean, 2008, I was at Goldman Sachs, 2007, 8, 9. And you know, I looked back at the price chart actually yesterday. Goldman is up four x since then. So you know, when I was there, I think the low was something like seventy four dollars, and now we're trading around three hundred and eighty. Well, I don't know before today, which is right about the same as the S and P five hundred, which at the lows there was like what seven eight hundred, and now before you know the pullback was thirty nine hundred or something like that. And so that's like a really simplistic way because you're taking your emotion out Mm -hmm. of it. And then you could go a little bit longer and you could say, maybe I want to look at 10-year moving average because maybe I think the last five years were too excitable. And that could be a way that you play the game too. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, Long-term,
2: are you optimistic? Are you thinking... You know, this is a scenario that we will weather, that we will get through. I'm thinking about the fact that when you look at the recessions and the recessionary periods in this country, you know, you're right, they're not unusual. There have been historically, I believe, 26 bull markets and 27 bear markets. Maybe it's the reverse, but the good news is the bull markets last a lot longer than the bear markets. And over time, the markets have historically gone up. Do we think that's going to continue? you?
1: Yeah, I do. And if it doesn't, who cares, then we're in an apocalypse, you know, that it's not going to matter that, you know, your 401k is down, because if we are in, you know, a lifelong depressive period, you know, you're going to have riots in the streets. And so, you know, part of me is like, yeah, there could be a worst case scenario where people I live in Texas. So, you know, buy the food and store the guns and, you know, go live on a ranch. Sure, that could work. But I also think that if it comes to that, you're not going to care about your stock portfolio anyway, so you might as well take a little bit of risk because apparently it won't exist. And so I think what people forget to do is look at second and third order effects. So they say, oh my gosh, it's a recession. I don't like the president. The actions of the company, country's taking, the you know, massive amount of stimulus that we've had, you know, the world is going to implode. Okay, perhaps that's true. If that is true, the second or third order effect would be currency is not going to matter. There'll be a run on banks and your stock portfolio is going to be illiquid. And so, okay, that, I can't really do anything with that information besides apparently, you know, go and become a little Rambo. But if I'm not going to go do that in order to survive this kind of scenario, then, then I probably want to think a little bit more strategically and look at 5, 10 or 20 year cycles. And so from my perspective, I'm a human optimist, an American optimist. I think we as humans have a tendency to always obsess over the negative more than the positive. Why? Because if you ignored A potential lion in the Serengeti, you got eaten. And so we needed to pay attention to the negative. But today, there's so much going on that's incredibly positive, actually, from an innovation standpoint, that I have a belief long term we'll be better off than where we stand today. And so I'm not an investor right now at this exact moment. I have a lot of cash on the sidelines. I'm sort of sitting and watching, but I raised money, I raised millions of dollars, maybe you know, six weeks ago with the idea that I think we're going to go into a recession and I want to have cash on hand to deploy while everyone else is scared.
2: Makes a lot of sense, actually, when you put it that way, right? Thinking about those long-term risks. The other thing I think that you hit on that makes a lot of sense is just this idea of having a plan, of running the scenarios. And that may mean needing some help to create a plan. If you've got a financial advisor and you're not completely thrilled, then maybe it's time to break up with that advisor or just to get a second opinion. It comes down to this. Are you getting the attention that you deserve or are you settling? our partner, Edelman Financial Engines, believes you shouldn't settle. They model more than 38,000 securities each month to stress test your portfolio through thousands of scenarios, just like the volatility the market is experiencing today. You can call 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash hermoney As a Her Money listener, you'll receive a complimentary financial plan to help you decide. I'm talking with Cody Sanchez, founder at Contrarian Thinking and co-founder of Unconventional Acquisitions. So can you talk a little bit about training for entrepreneurship? You talk a lot to your own audience about that. What does it mean to be in training to launch a business?
1: Well, first and foremost, let's start with saying I don't think everybody should Launch a business. I think you know there's this verbiage that goes around entrepreneurial circles that sort of de minimizes W twos or employees and says that that's not a good thing. And I actually think that's hugely toxic and not very helpful. It's like you know, do you think that some of the W twos that are Fortune 500 CEOs of companies are not extremely powerful, wealthy, and probably pretty happy in a lot of instances? No, it's ridiculous. That's just your tax status. And so first, I'll say you don't have to start a business. But what I do think every human has to do that you talk about here, too, is you have to have ownership in something. You cannot be a renter of everything. And so that's why, you know, when I saw that statement from the United Nations that said, you know, you'll own nothing and be happy about it, I was like, ah, I have chills everywhere. I get it's I'm <laughs> not, not interested. Because you want to have ownership allows you to not have to trade your time for money forever. If you have ownership in stocks, that means the stock is working for you, theoretically, when you're not, right? And so when I think about entrepreneurship, I start to think about it like, where can you just get some ownership? And maybe the first thing that I would start with is what you do here, which is talking about the language of money, talking about the language of business and getting right on your terminology. Because when I first started in finance, you know, I heard things like IRR and cash on cash return and, you know, expense ratio and basis points. And I had no idea what everybody was talking about. And so most people think about just starting a business. Like I have X idea. I like candles. I want to start a candle shop. Okay, that's fine, but if you don't understand your COGS, your cost of goods sold, if you don't understand the unit economics, which means every single product that you make, how much does it cost you to make those items and then do marketing and spend on top of it, then you're probably not gonna be very long-term successful and you're confusing a hobby or a passion for a profitable enterprise. And so if you're starting at the 101 level, I think the most important thing you can do is just, you gotta get fluent in the language of money and you you gotta get fluent in the language of business. And you can do that pretty easily just by Googling Things like financial statements, profit and loss statement, what do those things mean on it, and then Googling all the underlying terms. Probably also, I think one of the best ways to learn about entrepreneurship is to watch how do investors consider whether to invest in one startup versus another. What are the questions that they ask? Look at pitch decks. And if you don't understand what's on the pitch deck for the type of business, do a little research with a quick Google until you do. And that's usually where I start because you don't have to start your own business, but you can certainly start investing in some.
2: I've done that. I invest in startups as I know that you do. You focus particularly on women-led startups. First of all, why? And secondly, What does that process look like for you, investing in startups? How do you choose which ones you're actually going to go forward with? And actually, go ahead and answer those questions. I'm sure I'm going to have many follow-ups.
1: Yeah, sure. So I have invested in many women-led companies. I do not use sex as a determinant of what type of business I'm going to invest in or race or political ideology or religious pursuit. I honestly don't care. The only thing I'm interested in, candidly, is do I want this business to exist in the world? So do I think that there is a net benefit to it? And do I think I'm going to make money on it? And if those two things are hit and they follow our investment thesis, which is like the terms of which I invest in deals, then I would invest in that underlying company. But for the most part, I try to not focus too much on anything else besides that. Now the businesses that we invest in today, our thesis is essentially twofold. We have two different funds that we invest through. One fund is a venture capital fund that invests in the infrastructure of boring businesses. And so what does that mean? It's like, you know, during the gold rush, how everybody says that people made money really on the picks and shovels, not going and trying to find the gold itself. But we do something similar. So instead of just investing in private equity like companies, which are things like landscaping companies, roofing companies, trucking companies, everyday companies that aren't VC backed. They're just cash flowing normal businesses that society needs to continue. So we invest in those types of companies. But what we're looking for is technology that is going to disrupt those companies. Things like car washes that are automated and have subscription services to them and the technology that the car wash runs on or the credit card readers that are now on all vending machines and washing machines at laundromats. So that's first and foremost. So how can old boring businesses add technology to them? We want to be the investors in that technology.
2: How did you decide that mm-hmm. that was where I mean that is so specific, right? Yeah. How did you decide that's where I want to invest my money?
1: Couplefold. One, I invested in those actual boring businesses for decades. So, I own lots of laundromats, lots of car washes, lots of those boring businesses. But the problem with those businesses are, you know, I have like 24 of those that are active investments in my portfolio and 20 and I used to have 26, I divested two. Because once you get a slew of them, they become hard to manage. You know they're people-intensive businesses, and so I would have to create a very large enterprise to have, let's say, a hundred million or a two hundred or three hundred million dollar portfolio of companies that do two hundred to three hundred million dollars in revenue. And so I was looking at how could we have scale in this sector I really like, and the way to do it is through technology. And the second thing is that. I have like a little bit of a moral belief. You know, I've made a couple shekels here and there, so money isn't my only driver anymore. But I have a moral belief that supporting small businesses is probably one of the most important things we can do to our country and society. And so for me, I obsessed on this idea of, How could we invest in Main Street? And what would that do to our community if instead of me giving money to the big, not that there's anything wrong with them, Apples and Amazons or the next Silicon Valley tech company, I could give money to the companies that were in my local neighborhood in Austin, Texas? And what would that look like? All
2: right. I interrupted you before you got to your second point. So
1: what's the other filter that you use? Well, you actually nailed it because the second one was I like to invest in those boring businesses, but I couldn't scale them. So, you know, we have a portfolio of like $40 million in revenue in those sort of boring traditional businesses, but to get to that 100 to $200 million level would be a lot more work. And so, candidly, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. If somebody wants to start, if you're thinking, yes,
2: I would like to be an angel investor. I would like to put some money into somebody else's business or even buy one. How do you find your prospects? from Starting from zero, how do you actually find an investment that will have you?
1: Sure. First, I'll say this. Don't invest in angel investments, in my opinion, until you have at least a million dollars and a sufficient amount of revenue to cover your costs. Angel investments, by and large, are going to lose you money. You have to have a diversified segment of angel investments in order to make money. And, you know, you'll probably lose money on most of your early investments because you won't really know what you're doing. And so I invest in startups now, but that's because I've invested, you know, and lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars early in my investing career by realizing what a good deal and a bad deal looks like. So I'll say that. Second is I think when you're first starting out, you want to do cash flowing deals. Your entire focus should be on, can I invest in a business that will return me money Almost immediately, if not within, let's call it the first quarter. And so those type of businesses are a little bit different because you can throw money on AngelList, let's say, at a one-off deal, and that's great. But the likelihood that they're going to return back to you in a one-year period is basically zero. Over 10 years, maybe you have a 20% shot. So, I would start with cash flowing deals. Now, where you find those is a whole process, but there's lots of different ways to do it. I mean, the easy way is to go to the, let's call it the MLS or the Zillow of small businesses, which are things like Flippa, which is for online businesses, e commerce, Flippers, sort of the same, BizBuySell, LoopNet. These are all sites that allow for you to buy these boring businesses in in a way that's publicly listed. So that's a place to start, at least to understand what it means to buy a business. And I think at Contrarian Thinking, we have an article, if you search contrarianthinking.co, like 130 boring businesses that I like to invest in, where you can see what are the different types of businesses and how did we find those deals.
2: It sounds a lot like investing in multifamily housing like buying a duplex, buy a triplex. I mean, is that a good place to start? And where are you on the real estate market in the United States right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly people who are bigger experts than I am. I have a couple of minds. If I look at the data, the average return on a single family home or a rental unit in the U.S. is about $462, and so on a monthly basis. Since the average home in the U.S. is worth somewhere around $300,000, you know, you have to put 10 to 20% down, so tens of thousands of dollars, for something that's gonna return you a couple hundred bucks a month. I don't really like that trade. I like it less now that interest rates are increasing, and so while I understand wanting to own real estate, and I own plenty of it, it wouldn't be where I was shoveling a ton of money right now. And a lot of my friends who are in the real estate game say, well, there's not enough supply. And so, you know, without supply, the demand is always going to be there and we're not going to have a pullback. And I call BS on that. I see it already in the market. I'm in one of the hottest markets in the country, Austin, Texas. And, you know, when I first was here, there were a bunch of houses around our neighborhood, you know, that went before the sign went up. And now there's three or four sitting around. And I bet in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be five or 10 sitting. And so the market is getting squishier in my opinion. Now, could the government do something crazy to stop that? Yeah. I don't want to invest based on that risk though. So I'm not a huge proponent for real estate in the current market. I would not be allocating. I would wait for more of a pullback, but that's just me and I don't have a crystal ball.
2: A couple more random questions because you've given us so many different leads to follow, so many different rabbit holes to go down. I don't want to overwhelm our listeners, but clearly you have a ton Your plate. Obviously, you like it that way, right? You are passionate about this, but I suspect that it might get to be a lot sometimes. What are your best time management tips?
1: I think I posted a video on Instagram today on this. You know, they're actually pretty aggressive. Like one is I just have learned, I really hate saying no. I hate conflict. I'm a pushover. And a people pleaser, all the things that I think, you know, sometimes... Us women can be. And so I've had to learn how to say no really aggressively. And because I don't like saying no, I've had to be sneakier about it. So, you know, I have people now, I've had the same cell phone number for like 10 years. And so I have people that will reach out constantly asking for time for a coffee or lunch or can I, you know, connect you with this person or will you invest in this? And I have to do crazy things like I just start blocking people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, because I get anxiety if I don't respond to it or say no continuously all the time. And so I'm like, yeah, you know what? This is just taking up mind space. So, anybody that is not a net ad or net value in my life, it's like, okay, I'm just going to silence this, basically. I do something similar with email. I have my admin check my email, and anything that isn't aligned with our core priorities for the business right now, I have her just either not respond if not applicable or respond kindly um, with something saying that's not on our priority list right now, but thank you for reaching out. I've gotten really good to it about not saying I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm focused. I'm appreciative of you and I hope everything goes awesome for you, but I'm not sorry that I'm focusing on my stuff and not your stuff. I almost have to have a harder edge about it or I won't do it. So that's been huge. I could be the best time manager in the world. And if I said yes to everybody else's priorities, I would get nothing done. And so I think it's starting there. And some of those are big. You know, another one of my funny ones is I hate when people send voice memos. Um, Oh, me too. Right? Right? Like, give
2: me more work to do just to listen to what you had to say. Exactly. And I think
1: it's a little selfish because it's like it's much easier for you. It's not easier for me. Mm -hmm. I could read your text in two seconds or I could listen to two minute voicemail about you saying, hey, how's it going? What's going on? It's nice here in Austin. What's the weather like? How's no uninterested. So I just start responding to people. Oh, hey, sorry, I don't I don't do voice notes. You know, and, and both of those things are a little odd, but those are two life hacks that I'm like, oh, I'm never not doing these again. And if you haven't signed up for Superhuman, the email, are you on that, Gene? I am not on that. What is that? Oh, man, it is like I should they should sponsor me for how much I talk about this thing. So Superhuman is an email management tool, which sounds like annoying. And how could that be that great? It overlays on Outlook or Gmail or whatever. But it uses keyboard shortcuts. So like instead of you having to scroll all around, you just like if you want to go to the next email, you just press J. Or if you want to respond to an email, you just press E. And it has all these easy templates that you can do. And then it's really smart in its categorization. So you don't ever have spam basically in your inbox.
2: Oh, I am doing this like in five minutes when we're done. Yeah.
1: It's brilliant. And they have this whole onboarding process. It's, it's the best onboarding I've ever seen at any company. They don't require you, but they like you to do a 15-minute onboarding call, which to me, I was like, oh, that's so, no, absolutely not. And I did it. And I was like, this is so good. They taught me, and it was really seven minutes, seven minutes, how to set it up, how to use it all, and which would have taken me a while of messing around with it, probably. And then they send an email a day for like 10 days showing you little fun hacks with it. And it is just an incredibly powerful tool. So that one helped me a lot also. Okay. Amazing.
2: One thing I know you don't say no to is physical activity, that you're camping, you're mountain climbing, you're surfing. What does that do for you? I mean, pushing your body, that's something that we often hear from, from CEOs, from leaders. What's the link between physically pushing yourself and pushing yourself in business?
1: Well, couple fold. One, I don't know about you, but it's tough for me to disconnect. And so I am always on my phone, I am always doing podcasts or my email, and I'm a very distractible human. I'm a little golden retriever. And so the (laughs) opportunity to do hard physical things makes it very hard for me to get distracted. Like if you are climbing a mountain or surfing or mountain biking, and you're checking your email, things are probably not going to go that well for you. And so it's a good forced shutdown. Secondarily, my husband's kind of a Hardo. And so he's taught me a lot about, he has a saying where when something is difficult for me, he'll say, is anybody going to die? And I'm like, no, you know, our email server isn't working correctly, you know? And so he just helps me frame things. And I think hard activity does that same thing because after you run the Ironman or surf a really big wave or, you know, go scuba diving down in the depths, you realize Like, yeah, this stuff that we do on the internet is important, but it's not going to kill you.
2: Where, Cody, can our listeners find you? If they want to get more involved in contrarian thinking, what do they do?
1: I would go to contrarianthinking.co. That's our newsletter. It's free, it's once a week. I think it's really good. It's growing like crazy. And then it it is really good, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I'm on all the socials. So also, if you haven't been experimenting with it yet, I've been messing around with a lot of YouTube Mm -hmm. stuff lately. And man, that place is powerful. I I don't watch a lot of TV anymore, and I do a lot more YouTube. Amazing. Thank
2: you so much for being here. I hope that we get to talk to you again. Sounds like a plan. Thanks
1: for having me, Jean.
2: And before we dive into our mailbag today, let me just take a sec to remind everyone that money is supported by BCU. BCU is one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions. It's an organization that helps members make smart financial decisions by offering the products, the services, the caring support they need for whatever stage of life they're in. You can find out if you're eligible to join BCU by visiting www.bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. How are you? I'm back in Philadelphia. So I am good. It's been a bit of a whirlwind for both of us the past couple of weeks, past month or so, I would say. I mean, my travels took me to Chicago to Knoxville, Tennessee, where I got to experience Dollywood for the very first time. I had no idea that it had so many amazing world-class roller coasters. And then I was in LA and then Hawaii,
0: Kauai, actually, all for work. So I think that's pretty good. How about you? That's amazing. I feel like looking at your calendar sometimes just makes me dizzy seeing all the places where you are. (laughs) But I have to say, I have to say, I haven't seen your calendar look like that since 2019. And there was something slightly reassuring about it. I was like, oh, Jean's back in the air, back on the road. Everything is normalizing now.
2: Yeah, there was something reassuring about it to me, too. We've got a mailbox
0: full of questions, so let's dig into some of them. Definitely. We've got some good ones today. Our first question is from Suzanne. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. Thank you for the previous advice. And as always, thank you for the financial guidance. I have a question about health care insurance. For those of us who have had insurance through our job for forever and are now contemplating moving away from the corporate world into a freelance situation, help How do we go about learning all we need to know to make wise decisions? I know some people may be able to get onto their spouse's plan, but for those of us who don't have that option, where do we even start? Specifically, what are the action steps you recommend? I have a chronic health condition. I see several specialists, and I have an infusion treatment every eight weeks. I have no idea what the cost of that would be, but currently my co-pays are fairly low. I recognize this is a benefit of staying in a corporate job, but I just don't want to do that. I'm so frustrated that we're dependent on the employer for health care. I need to, one, understand what type of coverage I need to buy and have the knowledge to evaluate those options, and two, understand the specific costs I'd be taking on if I go this direction. I really want to avoid any surprises down the road. Please advise, and if you can recommend an article or website or book that dives into these details, I would love a step-by-step guide. Thank you so much, and I look forward to the podcast every week. Suzanne, thank
2: you so much for writing. Thank you also for the incredibly nice words. We're happy to have you in our community. I get it. I remember when I was leaving my last quote-unquote Big employer job, and knew that I was going to be out there buying my own health insurance. And it was really pretty daunting. It was the reason that I did not want to leave, right? That and the 401k. I I liked having somebody else do this for me. The good news is that it is possible. You just are going to have to, particularly because of your condition, take some very specific steps in order to make sure that you understand what the costs are going to be and that you get into the right plan for you. When you shop on an exchange, and basically people who buy their own health care these days are typically shopping on the marketplaces that were set up by the Affordable Care Act, you're going to have three different types of plan choices. You're gonna be looking at HMOs, where you have to choose a plan that gives you a set network of doctors and hospitals. You're gonna have choices of PPOs, where you have a more expansive opportunity to go to in-network and out-of-network doctors, and you're going to have high-deductible health plans where you cover a lot more of the cost up front and have lower premiums as a result. Those high deductible plans also give you the opportunity to make a contribution to a health savings account, which is beneficial because it saves you about 25% off the cost of pretty much all of your medical procedures and expenses and prescriptions in the form of tax savings. You, because of your condition, are probably not going to be best off on one of those high deductible health plans because you're going to end up having to pay the whole deductible for those infusions that you have every eight weeks and for those specialists that you see. I believe that you're going to want to look more specifically at an HMO or a PPO. The next thing that I would do is talk to your doctors. Doctors and particularly the medical billers in their offices are really familiar with all of the different insurance plans, and I would ask them for specific guidance on which plans might be the most friendly to you, which is not to say that They're always going to accept those particular plans because I've been with doctors where they've just decided at some point along the way we're no longer going to work with this insurer. But it's a really good place to start. And similarly, for those specific medications that you take, you're going to want to look at the formularies of the various insurance plans that you're considering And make sure that the drugs that you take or an acceptable alternative is covered. The other thing that you can do besides dealing with the exchange is to deal with a company that will help you buy this health insurance, like an ehealthinsurance.com or another health insurance broker. You may be able to tap into somebody there who is a little bit more knowledgeable about that. And as for a good resource or article, You know, there's a decent number out there. If you go ahead and you Google these keywords, you know, Google looking for health insurance, Google looking for a healthcare plan. I've been very impressed with the reporting of Libby Rosenthal. Her byline is Elizabeth Rosenthal. She was with the New York Times for years. She now works for Kaiser Health Services. And she writes pretty consistently still for the New York Times in the form of op-eds. I think just reading her body of work will help you get up to speed.
0: Those are great suggestions, Jean. I also think talking to other freelancers who you know. I know a lot of women who do the freelance writing thing, and they all seem to make it work. So good luck with that. Absolutely. Good luck with that. Let us know what happens and if we can help more. Our next question today comes to us from Laurie. She writes, hello. How do you know when you have saved enough to retire? I keep thinking of all the what ifs during this phase of life, health issues, wedding expenses, traveling, all on top of unpredictable inflation in the US. My husband and I are in our late 50s, so we have another 30 to 40 years to go. A lot could happen. We have a net worth of $1.2 million, and we both have federal pensions and Social Security that will give us annual income in the low $100,000 range when we retire. We earn about $250,000 now. We max out our 401ks and IRAs. We don't own real estate due to needing to be mobile right now, but we've been wondering if we should buy a villa in Spain. My husband could retire now with full pension and Social Security as if he were 62 and a half years old, but I'm not quite eligible these are good problems to have, right? What else should we be looking at as we move ahead? Thank you.
2: I love this question. I just want to say yes, buy a villa in Spain, right? If a villa in Spain is something that that is on your wish list and you are thinking that that will add quality to how you want to live your life, and maybe you don't need to buy it. Maybe you can rent it. But if you want to spend time in Spain, I love Spain and, and you should definitely do that. But When it comes to your specific question, the answer really has to do with how much you think you'll spend in retirement. And I'll give you some framing for how to come up with those numbers and how to make sure that you've saved enough to achieve them. But, you know, we always sort of fall back on rules of thumb when it comes to how much we're likely to spend in retirement. The usual number is... 85%-ish of what you have been spending in your pre-retirement years. The problem is that that's an average, right? And if you're expecting that you are going to do a ton of traveling, that you are going to have a lot of adventures, that you are going to have wedding expenses for multiple children... It's possible that you will be one of those people who actually spends as much as they spent before they stopped working or even more. And the key is to know enough about what your retirement expenses might look like to be able to plan for whatever that is. The fact that you guys have a pension is amazing pensions and Social Security sound like they are going to cover about half of whatever you're earning now, the $250,000 a year that you're earning now. So the question is, of the remaining $125,000, how much of that gap do you have to cover? How much of that gap do you have to cover yourself? The benchmarks that I typically rely on that were developed by Fidelity Investments go that you should aim to have about one times your annual income put away by the time you're 30, three times at 40, six times at 50, eight times at 60, and 10 times by the time you retire. You're not quite at that 50-year benchmark yet, but because you have pensions, you don't quite have to be. Those numbers were designed to replace about 45% of your pre-retirement income, figuring Social Security would replace about the other 35 to 40 percent to get you to that 80 percent range. You can take the amount that you have to save down by the amount that that pension will cover. I'm not sure where the Social Security Ends and the pension begins, but you can take pencil to paper and essentially figure that out. If your pension is going to cover 15% of your annual income, then that's 15% that you don't have to actually save for. I do think that this is a really good time for you to sit down with a financial advisor because, yes, you're right, these are incredibly good problems to have. But as you point out in your letter, we're dealing with a lot of factors that we haven't been dealing with for a while, like unpredictable inflation in the United States. And having a plan that lays out both the growth of your investments or the likely growth of your investments based on your current savings rate, as well as what those Planned and unplanned expenses are likely to be what I think provide a certain level of comfort. And so if you have a financial advisor, fantastic. If you don't have a financial advisor, we've got a button on the hermoney.com website that says contact an advisor. We'll help put you in touch with a financial advisor at our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. And you can sit down for a free consultation and and they'll actually work up a free retirement plan for you. So I would
0: suggest that you give that a shot. Amazing, Jean. You really covered a lot of ground there. Thank you so much.
2: Before we get into this week's Thrive, I want to tell you about Girl Meets Farm. It's a fantastic podcast from Food Network that we think Her Money listeners will love. Girl Meets Farm is hosted by Molly Yeh. She is a city girl married to a fifth-generation beet farmer. Yes, that's true. Living on the border between Minnesota and North Dakota. And on her show, she cooks everything from shakshuka to chicken pot hot dish, Midwestern classics with a twist, but also crazy good dishes inspired by her Chinese and Jewish heritage. The Girl Meets Farm podcast is direct audio from the TV show. And what I'm loving most here are the sounds. You can actually hear the sizzle and the pops as she cooks bacon hash and the crunch of the cabbage in the crispy fish tacos. Try giving it a listen the next time you're cooking. It'll be like having a friend in the kitchen keeping you company. You can listen to Girl Meets Farm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And in today's Thrive female advisors, on the most convincing reasons you need to invest now. As we just heard from Cody, investing is so very important for our financial futures, but we also know that some of our listeners either haven't taken that step yet or are looking to invest more. At HerMoney.com, we break down some of the best reasons that you need to invest or invest more right now according to some of our favorite female financial advisors. For starters, investing is the springboard to creating a life full of choices. Although money can't buy happiness, it does make many aspects of day-to-day life just easier. When we intentionally focus on saving and investing goals, we give ourselves the ability to switch jobs or switch industries, to care for kids or parents, to take a year-long sabbatical to travel, or to move abroad. We have options, and in that way, investing means possibility. Also, we happen to be really good at it. Female investors are nearly twice as likely as male investors to consider both rates of return and impact on their investment when making a decision, and we make more holistic decisions with our money. In the long term, this approach makes us more generally successful than our male counterparts, and we call that a win. Lastly, Keep in mind, a large bank account doesn't equal financial security. Raise your hand if having a lump sum of cash sitting pretty in a savings account makes you feel secure and protected. Sure, having cash on hand is a good idea, but when we don't invest, we don't give ourselves the opportunity to outperform inflation. With interest rates getting higher every single day, our cushy-looking account is only going to lose purchasing power over time. But by investing in the stock market, you can give yourself the opportunity to build real wealth. Yes, there is always going to be volatility in the markets, which is what keeps many women away from investing. But we also have to keep in mind that over the long term, the upside volatility is greater than the downside volatility. For more reasons to get invested and stay invested or For a step-by-step guide on opening your first brokerage account, visit us at hermoney.com. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Cody Sanchez for her insight on what it really means to be a contrarian and so much more. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.